hope you're all sensing the um, call of our God this morning. Uh, for us. And um, I want to, most of the scriptures I read this morning are speaking of the Father heart of God. And um, I want to talk a little bit about partnering with our Father for the fulfillment of his desire, his will and will. I'm going to read a couple of passages, and uh, I'll just tell you what they are, and I'll, you, can, you can go write them down, look them up later. I'm going to go right ahead and read them. Um, in, um, these are all scriptures we, we hear quite often, but I want to really highlight them a little bit today. In um, Romans 8, 14 to 17, I believe this was read at House of Prayer yesterday, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For the spirit which you have now received is not a spirit of slavery to put you once more in bondage to fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption, the spirit producing sonship, in the bliss of which we cry, Abba, Father, Father. The Spirit himself thus testifies together with our own spirit, assuring us that we are the children of God. And if we are his children, then we are his heirs also, heirs of God and fellow or joint heirs with Christ, sharing his inheritance with him. Only we must share his suffering if we were to share his glory. And in Ephesians 4, 13 to 15, speaking of the body, we, we've been talking about gifts. It's speaking of the, uh, the, the fivefold ministry and um, God's intention for the perfecting and full equipping of the saints. And in verse 13, that it might develop until we, that, that the body might develop until we all attain oneness in the faith and in the comprehension of the full and accurate knowledge of the Son of God. Right here now, that we might arrive at really mature manhood. Okay? And for you ladies, <laughs> all of us, maturity. <laughs> That we might arrive at maturity, the completeness of personality, which is nothing less than the standard height of Christ's own perfection, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and the completeness found in him, so that we may no longer be children tossed like ships to and fro between chance gusts of teaching and wavering with every changing wind of doctrine, the prey of the cunning, uh, the cunning and cleverness of unscrupulous men, um, in every shifting form of trickery and inventing errors to mislead. Rather, let our lives lovingly express truth in all things, speaking truly, feeling truly, living truly. Enfolded in love, let us grow up in every way and in all things into him who is the head, even Christ the Messiah, the anointed one. So, you see here, Father's great joy is to see his children grow up in every father's heart, every father's great joy. And, you know, sometimes there's, I mean, there's pain along the way. We, as they're growing, we, you know, we, we, we agonize with them at times. Sometimes we've got to say goodbye to them as they move forward. You know, that's all part of maturity. I mean, tomorrow I'm sending my son off to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. He's joining, he's entering the U.S. Army. And uh, it's like a one wow <laughs> moments. And my heart is torn. I, 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 I so happy for him, and I'm excited, but of course, I, you know, I, 
transformation, Ephesians 4 goes on to say what we would look like, and I trust no one in this room wants to look like what I'm about to read. So this I say, it's verse 17, this I say and solemnly testify in the name of the Lord, as in his presence, that you must no longer live as the heathen, the Gentiles do, in their perverseness, in the folly, vanity, and emptiness of their souls, and in the futility of their minds. Their moral understanding is darkened, and their reasoning is beclouded. They are alienated, estranged, self-banished from the life of God with no share in it. Because of the ignorance, the want of knowledge and perception, the willful blindness that is deep-seated in them due to their hardness of heart, to the, insensi the insensitiveness of their moral nature, in their spiritual apathy, they have become callous and past feeling and reckless and have abandoned themselves to unbridled sensuality, eager and greedy to indulge in every form of impurity that their depraved desires may suggest and demand. But you did not so learn Christ. So, without that transformation, that's the path that we go down. Yeah, that's where it leads. Um, and there are areas in all of our lives where God is really working to transform to shift, I guess the word would be shift, our understanding into agreement with him. And I want to just touch on a few of those quickly today. But he wants to shift our understanding into agreement with him. Or he wants to take away every distorted, he wants to take away our distorted, blurred vision. Okay? That, that evaluates things by the natural eye, by what we see. So that we no longer interpret life through that distorted lens. Because I'll tell you what, it, our human experience, there's going to be ups, there's going to be downs. If we're interpreting life through that lens, we're not, building our, our, we're not building our life on the rock. We're building it on sand. See, it's like you ever, you ever go into the, uh, the fun house at the carnival and those mirrors, and you look at them and your image looks distorted, your face looks like, yeah. You know, and you, or you look really short, you got a little leg. You know, and, but it's a distortion. It's not what you really, it's not reality. It's not what you really look like. It's a distortion. It's a distorted image. And Satan works all day to create distortion and to get you to buy it. You see, and yesterday at House of Prayer, I was, was interested as that as the minstrel was playing at the three to four o'clock session, the Holy Spirit really spoke to me, and I'll just read what he said. And it was, about, it, was for, it was about the church in America. It said, God is removing hardness of heart that, was create, that has created dullness of perception, distorted mindsets, and a calloused and jaded sense of pessimism and unbelief among God's people in America. With a softened heart will come a shift in perspectives, allowing us to again see clearly, discern truth, and reject and break agreement with lies of darkness. 
Ezekiel 36, I believe, 46, uh, God says, I'll take your heart of stone away and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. I believe that's what he's doing. He's softening hearts. And so a couple of areas today where God is working to bring us into full agreement with him and shattering those distorted images. I want to touch on a couple of those today. One is... One is our view of how God's, how we view God's intentions toward us. How we view God's heart toward us. All right? Uh, really knowing that the kind and generous heart of the Father, and knowing that his intentions toward us are only good, and that he's always working for our good, truly working for our good, Right? And that really with the understanding that God is for us and not against us. Now, Psalm 100, verse 5 says, For the Lord is good, his mercy and loving kindness are everlasting, and his faithfulness and truth endure to all generations. Now, Christians everywhere and anywhere would be quick to say, Yeah, amen. You, know, you can even say, God is good. And people say, All the time. <laughs> like they're filling in the blank. But here, here's the thing, and, 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 and I know we, we get that. But here's the thing, if you're put into a difficult, challenging situation or a lengthy trial, it's very, that's where the temptation comes to buy into those, you know, those, you know, to, to, to really start buying into the, that, that bait that Satan puts out there, those why questions, to begin to start doubting the goodness of God. See, in, um, I know I'm giving you a lot of scriptures here, but in um, Matthew chapter 7, and I'm going to specify another place. Matthew 7, we're invited. God says, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and him who knocks it will be opened. Well, what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf, we'll give him a stone. Or when he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who's in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? You see that? And over in uh, James chapter 1, it tells us that every good and perfect gift, every good and perfect gift comes, comes from God. Right? That's uh, James 1, 17. James 1, 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. That's who he is. That speaks of his goodness. And it's the truth. It's the truth. But in difficult situations of human experience, the enemy will work overtime to get our minds into a place of carnality where we begin to doubt the goodness of God, where we begin to doubt his good, kind-hearted intentions to us, his compassionate, covenant-keeping heart, the God who always fights for us and does all things for our good. And um, I want to just highlight a little story here. Uh, it's in Joshua 17, verses 14 to 18. A little story from the scripture. 
And uh, I will put in a plug here for systematic Bible reading. There's a couple ways to read the Bible. You can read it by revelation, like scripture pops into your mind and you, you go to it and study it out. And that's a powerful way to study the word, you know, by theme or by revelation in the Holy Spirit. But there's also a place for just giving careful read through books of the Bible. You know, giving careful read through books of the Bible. Honestly, um, I've never seen this story to this degree before. And it was just the Lord instructed me to give the book of Joshua a very slow, careful read. And one morning at 5 a.m., this thing just jumped off the page. And um, it's in Joshua 17, verses 14 to 18. And uh, it says the tribe of, this is after Israel had crossed over into the land of promise. It says the tribe of Joseph, one of the 12 tribes, came to Joshua saying, why have you given us but one lot and one portion as an inheritance when we are a great abundant people? For until now, the Lord has blessed us. Okay, so they're coming at Joshua saying, you know, why have you given us this particular parcel of land? Uh, it doesn't meet our specs. It doesn't feel like a blessing to us. Joshua replied, if you are a great people, get up to the forest and clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim since the, uh, the Ephraim hill country is too narrow for you. Then the, the Josephites said, well, the hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who dwell in the valley have iron chariots. And uh, Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and to Manasseh, you are indeed a great and numerous people and have great power. You shall not only have one lot. In other words, what you're saying is not true. You are a great people. And he says, but the hill country shall be yours. Though it is a forest, you shall clear and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and are strong. Okay? So the indictment here is, and you can read some commentary on it. Matthew Henry's commentary has a great commentary on this. So I'm, I'm not pulling this just out of my own spirit. I, I, I did some study. But the indictment here is, they're coming to Joshua with this. You haven't they're basically accusing God, because Joshua here represents God, saying, well, you haven't given us enough, one, and two, what you gave us isn't good, and three, you've set us up for failure and defeat and lack, and that's the big lie. That's the big lie, that God brings you into a situation, you know, you get a prophetic word about great promise, and then all of a sudden God brings you into a situation, and it feels like you have been set up for failure and lack. This is difficult. This is hard ground. I, why, why this? I, I should have something else. You see, and those are the lies. Joshua, like a good father, reminds them that they have everything they need to succeed. Everything they need to succeed. So what was God doing here? Why not just give them all, you know, a $500,000 home, uh, a $500,000 turnkey house with an in-ground swimming pool and the barbecue all set and go? Why not just give them that? Well, here's the thing. God was growing them up. God was growing them up. If you have to understand the history leading up to this, when Israel was in the wilderness, you heard these tender-hearted things from the father as if he was speaking to a little child. He says in Deuteronomy 1, I carried you like a father carries his son to the wilderness. And he gave them manna. He gave them manna. Every morning they go outside, there's the manna, there's our food. God just gave them manna. He fed them. You see? Now, manna's great. But that wasn't God's highest. God had a better plan. The manna was temporary. That was only to get them to the land of promise. So if we like to pray, oh, God, feed me with manna. Well, maybe not. I, he's got a higher plan, okay? Yes, Jesus is the bread of life. But 
the manna represented something very temporary. It was for a time in their lives when they needed that, a time in their journey. But then it came to the place where they cross over Jordan, and it says the manna ceased. The manna ceased, and it was time to go in and possess the land. It was time to get to work. It was time to fight, you see? And, you know, here's the thing. As long as we're just eating manna, if we're just, if we're just depending, depending on manna, you know, where's my meal? Where's my stuff? You know, um, you know, carry me, God. We don't grow up. And Galatians has something to say about that. Paul said to the Galatian church, remember, we read we're heirs, we're joint heirs with Jesus. Paul said to the Galatian church, as long as the heir, the one receiving the inheritance, is a child and underage, he does not differ from a slave. Although he is the master of all the estate, he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. See, you have an inheritance, and in fact, in Christ, this might blow your mind, but in 1 Corinthians, Paul said to the Corinthian church, all things belong to you. All things. This goes back to the blessing God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, and God blessed, this is amplified, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, using all its vast resources in the service of God and man, and have dominion, rule, over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves upon the earth. See, you've been given broad authority. But here's the thing, you must grow to maturity to access it fully. We have to grow to maturity to access it fully. And for this to happen, we have to go through, whatever you want to care to call it, the school of the spirit, God's wilderness program, God's training, God's boot camp, whatever you want to call it, You've got to go through it, and there is no shortcut around it. Consider Joseph. We could, I, I, I'm always mesmerized by the life of Joseph. We could study him all day. You know, favor of God on his life, dreams, visions. He wasn't always smart about who he brought those. He went to his brothers. I had a dream that you were all bowing down to me. Not a wise, not a smart thing to say. <laughs> not why? Well, so what, what? But what did he have to go through before he became a ruler, a ruler in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh? And he went. He was hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused, imprisonment, forgotten about, more imprisonment. And, yeah, I mean, a tough journey. But so, but here's the thing: God has to grow us up if we want the inheritance, and He knows exactly what each of us needs. He has a school of the spirit specially prepared for you and me. And for each one of us, it's unique. It's unique. I had a, uh, my high school football coach. He knew exactly what it took to challenge us, and he really was a father figure. Half the guys on my team didn't even have fathers. They came from the other side of the tracks, as he used to say. You know, you had on one side of the town doctors and lawyers, kids, and big homes, and you had on the other side people living in shacks. Well, half of them, half of them didn't have a father. And this, this, they viewed the coach, his name was Coach Joe Sip. They viewed Coach as like a father figure. He, he let them, they'd come live with him if, 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 they, if, they, if they ended up homeless. He, he'd take them in. This is a good man. Um, but he knew what it took. He knew when it was time to encourage you, and he knew when it was time to challenge you. 
On the field, if he sensed you weren't giving your all, his favorite statement was, quit babying yourself, son. He'd call you son, but he'd tell you quit babying yourself. Off the field, no one could touch you. You're his boy. You're his boy. I mean, I remember he, he fought. It wasn't even in my mind to do this. He called me and approached. He fought for me to get into the National Honor Society as a high school senior. And he really fought tooth and nail to gain me entrance into it. I didn't ask him to do that. He did it for me because he cared about me. See, but that's, that's the heart of a father. So a good father knows when to challenge you and when to just give you comfort and encouragement. You see? And Joshua, like a good father, did this. He called the people up higher out of an entitlement mentality. He told them, go take possession of the land. Contend for it. It's yours. Get to work. He said, yes, you are a great people. Go up there and clear that forest. Clear the forest. You're going to have to build your homes up there. You know, it doesn't look like it now. It looks like a forest. Go clear it. And they said, well, we can't. The Canaanites are there. And they got those iron chariots, you know, those wheels. You ever see Ben-Hur, the spokes? Steer in and, you know, yeah, they are that. And he's saying, don't be afraid of them. You are a great, mighty people, and God is for you. Go get to work and get in the fight. That's your land. God's given you that land. It doesn't look like it now, but that's your land. To them, it looked like forested land, and in the valley of Canaanites, we want no part of it. And God says, no, that's your inheritance. That's your inheritance. So, see, when we see... You know, valley of dry bones, God sees mighty arm. You see? And we have to learn to think and act like God. You know? And, and where, where, do we, where do we get that? Well, in, in, in Ephesians 5, we are... It says, Therefore be imitators of God, copy him and follow his example, as well-beloved children imitate their father. Begin to think and act like God. Begin to see things as God sees them. You know, and that there's real implications there. He's the God who he sees he sees thing when we see barrenness, he sees he sees where he's going. He sees where he's taking someone or some group of people. He sees where he's taking a church. And he, he sees he sees he sees it as if it's already done. He's the God who speaks of things that don't yet exist in his in the, it's only in the realm of promise as though it's already been fulfilled. You see? And so we need to lead to, learn to speak the language of promise and live in that place. And so, you know, what was jo so Joshua is, is reminding them, you know, you will defeat the enemy. God is with you, fighting for you. Now, you can read in Matthew's Seminary commentary about that, this. He is much more blunt than I am. <laughs> he's not even really, that was written like 100 years ago. It was not very polite. It's, he's just very blunt. He, uh, he says, uh, he says, uh, uh, Joshua endeavors to reconcile them to their to their lot. His his he uh, he uh, he owns that they are a great people and tells them that what has fallen to their share would be sufficient to them if they would but work and fight. They desired a lot in which they might indulge themselves in ease and luxury. No, says Joshua, you are a great people. You are the better able to help yourselves and have the less reason to expect help from others. He bids them work for more. Get thee up to the wood country, which is within thy own border, and let all hands be set to work to cut down the trees, rid the rough lands, and make them with art and industry good arable ground. Note many wish for larger possessions who do not cultivate and make the best of what they have. Think they should have more talents given them who do not trade with, um, with those with 
uh, with which they are entrusted. Um, he bids them fight for more. When they pleaded that they could not come at the uh, woodlands he spoke of, because in the valley between them, as it were, uh, it were in it were Canaanites, never fear them, said Joshua. Thou hast God on thy side, and thou shalt uh, drive out the Canaanites, if thou wilt set about, about it in good earnest, though they have iron chariots. <laughs> he says, he ends with this, we straighten or link ourselves to poverty by apprehending the difficulties in the way of our enlargement to be greater than they really are. What can be insuperable or impossible to overcome with faith and holy resolution? That's not so, let's keep in mind the words of Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be our foe if God is on our side? He, do, he who did not withhold or spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him freely and graciously, here it is again, give us all things? Grow up into it. Second area God wants to bring us into agreement with him is to be in light of this, to begin to see yourself and one another as in Christ, as members together of a truly loyal family. You're a loyal priesthood, a holy nation. Speaking of the church, you know? And you you are, I want to I just want to say this to all of us today. You are loyal. You are, you are part of a royal family. And in Luke 12, Jesus said, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom, meaning he's well pleased to do it and willing to do it. See? In uh, Esther, one other story today. You okay with that? In Esther, we read a story that's a very powerful type of the relationship between Christ and the church. And um, a, a decree of death had been issued over the Jews. Uh, there was a wicked man in the king's court named Haman who got the king to authorize an edict. A, uh, and there was a decree issued that all the Jews would be put to death. Because they didn't, they, they quote, Haman convinced the king they didn't follow his laws. They were going to be put to death on a certain day. And what the king didn't know, Queen Esther was a Jew. And Mordecai, Esther's cousin, he, he goes into the town village square, and rips his clothes, and puts in sackcloth and ashes, weeping and wailing. And he sends to Esther uh, a message saying, You've got to go before the king got to plead for the Jews. This is your time. This is your moment. You've got to do this. And so we pick this up. Esther has her doubts. She's, she's, she's really not quite sure that she has that authority. And she says, well, all the king's servants and the people of the king's uh, provinces know that for any man or woman to come to the king in the inner court who's not summoned, he has but one law, and that he be put to death. Unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come the king, to the king for these 30 days. Isn't it in, in silence? That's where our minds really go. He hasn't called me into the court in 30 days. I don't think I want to go in there. I'm, I don't think I have authority to. He could kill me. He could take my head off. 
Well, Mordecai sends back some wisdom from God to her and says, um, well, uh, tell, tell Esther this. Don't imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and de deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've come to attain royalty for such a time as this. Now Esther, here's a beautiful picture of the church. <coughs> all right? And it says, so Esther... She heard that word, and she humbled herself, and she went into a time of fasting and prayer. She says, all right, I'm going to do it, and if I die, I die. And, and it says, listen to these next three verses. This is beautiful. Verse 1, and this speaks of us. Now it came about on the third day after fasting, Esther put on her royal robes. You are royalty. You've been given a robe of righteousness. You have royal robes. You know, what is Satan after? He wants to strip you of your royal robes. He wants to strip you of your royalty. Mentioned Joseph before. His father gave him a coat showing his father's favor upon him. What did his brothers do? Tear the coat off him. Dip it in blood and pretend he's dead. Send it back to dad and tell him an animal killed him. What was it? The enemy is always wanting to strip you of your royalty. Convince you you're a pauper. Convince you you're just not. That, so, that somehow that's for everyone else, but not me. I just don't. I don't measure that. Esther had her doubts, but she put on her royal robes. She put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal room opposite the entrance to, to the palace. When the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. He had great favor with God. Now this speaks of prayer, a place of prayer. When you, when you come before God, the king says to her, what's troubling you, Queen Esther, and what is your request? Remember, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is what the king says to Esther. Even to half the kingdom it shall be given you. What's your request? I'll give you up to half my kingdom. See, Father is lavishly generous. Lavishly generous. And so important today that we understand that we are not spiritual beggars. We're not spiritual paupers. You really don't have to approach God with please God prayers. I know we do that sometimes, and it feels holy. But there's a better way to approach him. You really can approach him as royalty. You really can. That doesn't mean pride. You come humbly. You come humbly. You humble ourselves. Father, Father, you come with with worship, but you come also with confidence, knowing who He has made you to be. Not what you became by your design or your own ingenuity, but what He has made you to be. You know? He's made us to be the righteousness of God. All because of what He has done. And putting our confidence squarely on that finished work of the cross, we come by the blood of the Lord. You see? before him. 
And so you're not a pauper. You actually, we as the church have the capacity to shift whole evil cultures, unrighteous decrees, to shift the atmosphere in the heavenlies over whole communities. We have that authority. We have that place. We are royalty before God. Remember this. What does the scripture say? Jesus is the king of kings. I know you hear that and you think, oh, well, he's talking about the president and the Canadian prime minister and Boris, uh, whatever. It, um, the king of kings. We are kings and priests unto the Lord. We are kings serving under the great king. Understand that? You understand the place you hold in God's heart? What he's given you? You know? It's like back to the garden. The dominion that he gave to Adam and Eve. Christ reclaimed it at the cross. I understand we'll see the full fulfillment of it in that great and glorious day of the Lord. I, that's, that's, but, but, there, but what's the prayer we're being for? We sang it today. Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth, in earth, in earth, that we begin to taste the we begin to taste the good things of the, of the coming kingdom here and now. We understand the kingdom's now and not yet. We, we get that. Yeah. But we begin to taste the good things that God brings heaven into the earth. You see? And that lives are changed. So his heart is lavish and generous. We read here up to half my kingdom. So how we approach him matters. Before him, clothed in your royal robes, in the robe of righteousness that he's given you, and don't let Satan strip you of it. What am I talking about? Don't yield, as, as real as it sounds, the lies are lies. Don't yield to accusation that comes against your mind. Don't yield to the, anything that would seek to, that, that, any lie that would come against your mind that would seek to drive you into places of despair, you know, or, or just. Complete apathy. That why do I even go? Who was I kidding? Don't don't allow that. You know. Don't 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 enter into agreement with those lies. Because once you enter into agreement with them, then you get into a place where you got a more difficult job. You may need some deliverance. Okay. You get into agreement with the devil. The devil kicks a door. We don't want. To, so we're we're talking about. You know, you're free, you're delivered, you're clean. No more agreement with those things. No more agreement. You know? And so as we get a hold of this, we begin to carry ourselves differently. When we partner with God in, in his rulership, in, in walking in, in our authority that he's granted us, you know? Uh, case in point, kings rule by decree. How does God rule? By decree. Well, you know, this, this as, as he shifts things in our heart, and we, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, you know, we begin, to, we, 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 begin to, we begin to have a new vocabulary. We speak differently. We think differently. We act differently. We don't engage in self-put-downs or putting our brother and sister down. We become ministers of life. We speak life. We decree life. We're, we decree life. We decree life. I'll tell you, and now, now don't, get, don't get me wrong, but... I start with your own self. You know, why would you even want to joke and speak about, you, you, you know, a whole, you know, about, about, oh, I just know I'm going to get the flu. I just know I'm going to get sick. Look, I, I, I understand that, that there have been abuses with the, the, the quote word of faith and, 
you know, I'm, you know, and, and, you know, and, you know, I don't know, you know, confessing Porsches into your driveway and all that. That's what I'm talking about. But, but speak and decree life, and start by speaking it over your own self, your own body. You know, let the weak begin to say, "I'm strong." Begin to decree life over yourself. Like, all right, in Jesus' name, whether I, I understand what I feel, I see the facts, but I know the truth. By his stripes, I was healed. And so I'm going to go forth today, trusting that word and standing on it, though everything around me feels contradictory. And this is where you begin to see God move in your life. Yeah. When you face contradiction with truth. Yeah. When you face contradiction with truth. This is where you begin to see him move. This is, see, this is where you are actually... Now, God is God, but this is where you actually free him to begin to fight for you. Okay? Because he moves, he speaks the language of faith, and he moves by faith. The woman with the issue of blood, listen, he's no respecter of persons. The woman with the issue of blood came up behind him and touched his robe, and by faith, he didn't even have to will it. Power flowed from him. Healing power. He didn't even have to will it. He didn't, he, the crowd's pressing in on him, but someone touched him by faith, and healing power just flowed. It wasn't one of these, well, I will that you get me. I, I will not to do it for you. I will to do it for you. It's not like that. It's not like that. You can come before him in, in great faith. And so begin to see things from God's perspective. I'm, I'm almost done here. But, um, yeah. So let's learn to speak like God. Speaking of those things that he's foretold and promised as if they already exist. Um, and this shift in, in, in this transformation, the last thing today, this transformation of our by the renewing of our mind will shift how you see everything natural circumstances and how you see, I want to just end with this today, how you see the harvest of souls, how you see the harvest, how you see the world alright the last year has been very trying, okay, and, I, and it, there's been a lot of movements have risen up in the earth, and you know, with COVID and, and rioting, and you know, and and if you know, you could watch the news, and if you yield to it, you can enter into places in the flesh that will not take you into a good space. But see, understand that, as I said earlier, when you see with your natural eyes nothing but dry bones. When you see death and no hope, and this isn't going to change, God sees something completely different. He sees the potential. He sees what he's going to do. He says to you, and he wants you to partner with him, he says, prophesy to that. Speak life over it. Speak life into that situation, and watch what I'll do. Because he sees an army being raised up. You know? And here's what I want to end with today. Understand, Father wants his children. He wants you everyone in this room, and he wants everyone out there. The people that have been stirring up trouble for you. The people who don't like you, who set themselves up as your enemy. The rioters in the streets. He, you know, the, Dr. Fauci, who made you wear a mask. Father wants all his children. <laughs> he wants them. And he's calling us to partner with him and, 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 and pray for them. And, uh, you know, begin to decree life over these situations. I think a lot of that went on yesterday. So here's the thing. 
Father wants his children. He will cross our lines. He will contradict our, our natural reasoning. He'll break down any boxes that we put him in. He will blow the lid off of our human reason. Okay? He delights in showing up in places where we say, God can't move there. That's nothing but a shell. That's nothing but a ghetto. That's nothing but a valley of dry bones. That's nothing but a dead denomination. That's nothing but a dead church. That's nothing but a group of weirdos. That's nothing but freaks. That's nothing but... He loves to show up in those situations. You've heard me talk about it before. You know, in my lifetime, I've seen two moves where God showed up in places where there was a lot of skepticism that he could. We all know, we've all heard of the Jesus movement. And get ready, I'm hearing leaders say they sense another Jesus movement. It may not look exactly like the one before, but there is one on the horizon and it's even, because God enters these chaotic situations. He enters chaos. And it was chaotic in the 60s, just like it's been in this nation today. It was chaotic with the protests, the Vietnam protests, people's protesters spitting on soldiers returning home, the, the summer of love, Woodstock, uh, you know, free love, all this, all this stuff that dragged American culture into, into darkness, okay? And in the midst of that, a group of young men and women known as the hippies got a hold of the truth of God's word. And God, and God began to shift lives. And I'll tell you, many churches were not prepared for it. Those that were reaped an abundant harvest. I happened, my father took us to a church where we worshiped right alongside with hippies, and it was a CCNA church, Christian Church of North America. It was Italian Pentecostals. And these old, and these Pentecostals were like these Italian folks who had like come over from Italy. They still spoke very broken English and preferred to speak Italian. In fact, they had an Italian service once a week. Well, on Sunday mornings, these hippies would be right here worshiping along. They're like, come in, come in, oh, we love you, you know. And they, and they treated these kids like royalty. These kids wearing their tie-dye and their massive afros. And I, and I remember they'd get up to testify and they'd use expletives, four-letter words, because they didn't know what else to say. And, and, but but the, the, the Italians were like, amen, amen, hallelujah, you know. And it was this, and, but I'll tell you, many churches were not prepared. And they missed out big time. I remember many of today's leaders in the body of Christ who were now in their 60s and even in their 70s were saved during the Jesus movement. You see? And I remember there was a, a group of, of, uh, of uh, leaders who were always talking about this certain woman who clearly had been a spiritual mother to them. And, um, uh, you know, and I, I, I found out about the story of that, that uh, she had had, and of course I'm paraphrasing, but... God gave her a dream or a vision or spoke to her and literally said, drive down the road, go to this church, and it was a certain denomination, and you're going to find some young people standing out there. Go there and pick them up and bring them home. They're murdering my prophets. She drives down there, and there's this group of hippies standing out in front of the church, and they're all teary-eyed and crying. And she pulls up and says, what's wrong? She said, they just kicked us out of the church. They said we don't, you know, they said we gotta get haircuts and look different before they'll accept us. They said they said we can't come into the house of God looking like this. You, you just you look like the world. And she said, come with me. 
Her home became a her home became a place, a safe place for them. And she began discipling them. And clearly they, they, there were many, many highly regarded leaders who spoke with about her as this woman faithful to her. You see? And there, and, and, and there it is. Uh, another example, you know, the, the, the charismatic renewal, you may have heard of it. Uh, it happened big time down where I was from. You know, um, there's, been this, there's been this thing where, you know, Protestants look at Catholics, have looked at Catholics as, uh, uh, they're probably not even really saved. I mean, they, they worship more than one God. They worship Mary. Well, God just kind of bypassed all that and just swept into Catholic gatherings with the Holy Spirit and began filling them with the Holy Spirit and knocking people on the floor and gifts of healing were flowing out of priests. And you can look it up on yourself, but it, it all happened. And um, you say, well, God can't do that. They're not saved. Well, he did. See, this is the thing. He will, he will bypass our natural thinking. And he'll do things where, where, where you see death and decay, and there and ever, God can't move there. He says, I'm going to do something there. I'm going to show up. You see? So he wants us to be in partnership with him. Let's not miss out. Let's not miss out. I was reading yesterday about this. Uh, Father's Day, 1995. A massive outpouring began in Pensacola, Florida. That was known as the Brownsville uh, Revival. And I was reading about it, just how it spanned the globe. And it began on Father's Day, 1995. Just a massive outpouring. Let's be ready. Let's be ready. Let's be ready for what God wants to do in this hour. Just making sense to everybody? Making sense? Let's allow God, I think the key, the word for today, be transformed by the continual renewing of your mind to the truth. And therefore, be imitators of God. Copy him and follow his example as well-beloved children. Imitate their father. Just pray into that for a moment. Father, today we commit to being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We, we want to see things as you see them, to walk as you walk, to talk as you talk, to think as you think. Lord, let us this day become those who copy you and follow your example as well, beloved children, and take your father. Lord, we thank you for it. Even challenge us in the days ahead, Lord, to not evaluate 